0: Our reading this morning is from Genesis 31. It says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am and he said lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped spotted and mottled for i have seen that all all that laban is doing to you i am the god of bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me now arise go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred then rachel and leah answered him and said to him is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days, and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me, and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And when he... And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all around the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of the woman is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it whether stolen by day or by night there i was the day the heat by day the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes these 20 years i have been in your house i served you 14 years for your two daughters And 6 years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters, or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones, and they took stones, and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager-Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and this pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The
1: word of our God stands us. So if you're not already there, turn to Genesis 31. I am really thankful for the missional communities that that um, each each Sunday, each month, I don't know if you know this, but if you're visiting, but they take on the, the, the greeting and the reading of the Bible and also the serving of communion. And I know reading is not always easy to do in front of 100 plus people. So I'm really thankful for that. And Mackenzie, I think, probably had the longest with 55 verses. So you did a good job. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you that um, even before the preaching of your word begins, uh, the the scriptures tell us that uh, your word will never come back void. So you don't necessarily need me. Uh, And yet, in your grace and mercy, you allow me to explain the text and um, to teach it in such a way that we can understand it and apply it to our lives. So God, help me to preach out of that humility, but also to uh, give us ears to hear uh, as well, that we would um, hear these words from your word um, as true and relevant for us uh, today and for the rest of our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So whenever we are in conflict, reconciliation should be something that we strive for. Now, if you hear me, if I ever give you any counsel or things like that, you're in conflict with somebody, you will hear me say, conflict is good. I'll say that all the time. Conflict's good because it helps to bring to the surface um, things that we otherwise would not address if we did not have a conflict, okay? But conflict can't last forever, even though it is good, it, it needs to be resolved. It needs to be reconciled because continued conflict has a, has a cost, and it costs a lot. So if it's a national conflict that, that we're having or an international conflict, say, with another country, uh, it ends up costing lives and lots and lots of money. If it's a personal conflict with another person, whether that be a friend or your spouse or a sibling or a child, walls are built up, and sometimes the relationship is severed. Reconciliation is what we see happening in this part of Jacob's story and what will continue to happen over the next couple of chapters in Jacob's life. But in today's chapter, it's, it's Laban who is reconciled to Jacob, but more importantly, it's Jacob being reconciled to God. And he's finally making uh, making this known to everyone around him. And so we see three actions that God performs in this uh, act of reconciliation here this morning. And this will be our three points. One is that God speaks. Two, God acts. And then three... God preserves. So God speaks, God acts, God preserves. So first, God speaks. So in these first 16 verses, God's voice is prominent. So we could say over the past couple of chapters that we looked at, um, God has been, um, he's been present, but he hasn't been vocal. We haven't really heard God's voice up until now. And the first person to hear God, God's voice in this chapter is Jacob, no surprise. And what he hears from God is both unmistakably clear and encouraging at the same time. Clear because God tells him exactly what his will is by telling him where he must go now. And this message hasn't changed since God told him this the first time in chapter 28, verse 15. Do you remember? behold, God says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, which is the land of his fathers. For I will not leave you or forsake you until I have done what I promised you. So it's clear because of that. It's a very clear word from the Lord. It's encouraging because once again, God is fulfilling his promises to his people. As he, as he fulfills them to Jacob, he is fulfilling, him to, fulfilling them to his people. So we've seen this happen over and over again in Isaac and Abraham, and now we're seeing it in Jacob. Because all of the small promise fulfillments lead to the ultimate promise fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of his people. So because God is fulfilling these small promises to us, we know that he is going to fulfill the ultimate promise, which is in Christ. Christ. And so at this point in the narrative, Jacob has been in Padam Aram working for his uncle slash father-in-law, Laban, for 20 years. And we know from last week that Jacob has become uh, both wealthy, and then from the previous week we've, we, we've heard that he also, uh, his family has also grown significantly. God has, has truly blessed Jacob. And now Jacob is being told by God to go, to leave this land where you have become so wealthy, to leave this land where I have provided for you so well. And besides the fact that God has clearly told him to do so, we might be asking the question how does Jacob know it's time to go? How does he know this? One of the commentators I leaned pretty heavily into this week is James Montgomery Boyce. He was a pastor in Philadelphia for many years. Um, But he points out three things here that I think are important for us to understand as Christians from this part of Jacob's life. Because it answers the question that we have all asked. How do we know God is telling us to do something? You might be asking yourself that now. Or, Or you might ask it like this. How do I know God's will? How do I know God's will? So for Jacob, it, had, it was three things that aligned for him that I think are we could say, and I don't say this a lot, are prescriptive for us as Christians. So the first thing that we have here for Jacob is that Jacob had a desire to leave and return home. Look at uh, chapter 30, verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph... Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my home and country. So that, that is a literal uh, action that, Jake, that, that J- uh, Jacob had. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, he runs to his father-in-law and says, let me go back to my country. So this is his desire. His desire is to return to his homeland, the home of his fathers. And, and the desire for something is not wrong if you have a desire to be married or you have a desire to have children or you have a desire to have friends or you have a desire to have even uh, that car or that house or to live in this particular city or that place or to have that job, the desire for something is not wrong. If you didn't have the desire, you would really need to question whether or not it was from God in the first place. But desire alone is not enough to make a decision about something. But I do think this is where most decisions are made, if I'm being pastorally honest. Most decisions are, are began and stopped at desire. Because you think, well, if I have this desire, and I'm excited about it, and it makes me happy, then it must be something I should do. If I, if I have this desire, and it's going to make me a lot of money, it's going to allow me to get that car, or get that house, or provide for my family even more, or, or whatever it might be, um, and, and it's going to make me happy, it's going to fulfill me in some way, then I should probably do it. Because God wants me to be happy, right? I mean, that's his ultimate goal, is it? wrong it's not he wants you in his will and if that means it lines up with your desires um and and it's it's one of these things i mentioned job whatever then then, then great but sometimes it might not line up because sometimes your desires are not leading you in the right direction either and so this is where the second um principle comes into play a second thing that happens to jacob is To affirm God's will is is that his circumstances had changed. So there had been six years between Jacob speaking about going home in chapter 30, and now what's actually happening in his life, where he is actually setting out to go home. And in, in these six years, he has, you heard him say it to Laban, he has earned significant wealth from Laban's flock. To the point that it was obvious to everyone around him. Jacob was growing even more powerful than Laban. And we know this because of the attitude of Laban's sons and the attitude of Laban himself. If you look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as he had before. So experiencing this, Jacob knew not only that he desired to go home, but that the time had come for him to do so. So you have desire, but you also have circumstances. And now you have the, most, the third most important element in his awareness of God's will is God actually speaking to him. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you so god speaks directly into jacob's situation and tells him exactly what he must do go home jacob so here's where you may be asking how does god speak to me directly because i have never i have never heard him do that i have never heard an audible voice from the sky tell me take that job marry that woman whatever it might be how do i know what god wants me to do and one way we can answer these questions with confidence is by stating definitively what is true about god now and that is this god speaks to us by his son through His Spirit in the Bible. Let's say that again. God speaks to us by His Son through His Spirit in the Bible. Which means, apart from this, this speaking by His Son through His Spirit in the Bible, apart from this, God does not promise that He will speak in any other way. So if you hear somebody say to you, I have a word from the Lord for you, and I've had this happen to me several times, and I, and I always know that I'm like, I, and, I want, and I want to hear it. I'm like, please tell me what this word from the Lord is. If anybody ever says that to you, your, your first reaction should be to go check it with the scriptures. Check it with the Scriptures every time. That is where we should run first. So so because we hear God primarily speak to us by His Son, Jesus, in the Bible, which is actually way better than our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament had it. They didn't have copies of the Scriptures just freely at hand like we do. Um, it's because if you're thinking... Oh, well, God spoke to them audibly. That's obviously the better option there. I wish God would do that now. No, actually, they probably would be looking forward if they knew they had this copy of the Scriptures of everything that God is telling them to do. They would say, that's what I want. I want a way in which I can go and hear God's voice every single day. So we're actually doing better than they were. God's promises are fulfilled in his son and he continues to speak to us through Jesus and his word. So this means if you have a decision you need to make and you need guidance and you need wisdom, the Bible is where you should be running first. So I said that this is prescriptive for us earlier, but this doesn't mean all of these things will be present when a decision needs to be made. So Meaning, you, you don't need to have this sort of confirmation to decide where you're going to eat lunch after the service. So you can't be like, "Well, I got to see if this is all lining up." Is God speaking to me? Let's check the scriptures here. You don't need to do that to make a decision about what you're going to wear to work tomorrow or anything like that. But when there is a when there are th- the decisions to be made that are that are serious and you need wisdom on these th- when these things are aligned you can guarantee that whatever it is that God is calling you to, or you think God is calling you to, it probably is His will. This is how I tend to put it. If you've ever heard me say this, if you're, I've had people ask me about this. So I, say, I always say to people, uh, is, is there an inward call? Do you have a stirring in your heart? Do you have a desire to do whatever it is you feel like God is calling you to do? Is it an inward call? First and foremost... Secondly, do you have an outward call are, are, are God's Word and God's people saying the same thing? So if I'm, I feel called to preach the Bible, so that years ago that was, I was first starting out, that was what I had a desire to preach. I felt like God was calling me to be a pastor. So I had this inward desire, but I also had other people around me saying... I see it too. I can affirm your desire. So you have an inward call, you have an outward call, and then you have providential opportunity. Life circumstances are moving you in the direction of what your inward and outward call are calling you to do. So life circumstances, so using my illustration of preaching, I was getting lots and lots of opportunities to teach and preach the Bible. Learning and growing in that. So, inward call, outward call, providential opportunity. And Jacob, in his life right now, beautifully models all three of these to us. But there's one more key, key step that Jacob models to us as well in, in knowing God's will. And, and, it, and it's when God speaks, we don't just hear him. We don't say, oh, okay, I, I, I sense that desire. Other people are telling me about it. I have all these opportunities to do it. Um, we don't just hear it and just leave it there. We actually do the will of God once we know it. We walk in obedience to what He's calling us to. James Boyce wisely says The reason for defeat in so many Christians' lives is not that they do not understand the will of God, but that they do not do what they understand. So maybe you don't do what God is calling you to do because you've already made a decision. And the outside counsel you've received from God's word and God's people goes against that choice you've already made. I see this often when people come to me for counsel about what they should do with their life. And I can tell almost immediately in the way that they're speaking to me that they do not want my wisdom. They want a stamp of approval because they've already made a decision. And that is not the way these things operate biblically. And Jacob, even with his many failings in life, I mean, everything for Jacob in his life would say that he would not do God's will. He would go his own way. This is what he's been doing almost his entire life. In all of his failings, he does not do this. Jacob hears God speak to him, and he does exactly what God tells him to do. So in verses 4 through 16, walks us through what God has called him to, and all the credit goes to God. Four times Jacob brings this up. Four times. In verse 5, but the God of my father has been with me. Verse 7, God did not allow Laban to harm me the entire time I've been with him. Verse 9, speaking to his wives, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Verses 10 through 13, Jacob credits God, not himself, for providing the spotted and discolored sheep and goats for him. Now, guys, I I feel like we know Jacob well enough at this point in his story to be blown away by these words from him. Here is a man who has not acknowledged God whatsoever. This this has been a, a long spiritual journey for Jacob to the point that if we were friends with him, at least for me, I would have given up on him a long time ago, and I would have said, man, that dude is, there is no hope for him. He's got two wives, he's sleeping with his wife's maids, you know, he's he's in a fight, with. he's deceiving everybody in his life. There is no way that God is speaking or moving in his life. But now he's finally turning towards God in a very real way. 20 years prior, if you remember, he's making a deal with God like God is some sort of benevolent grandfather. Like, yeah, yeah God, I will, I will live for you uh, if you do these things for me. And now he's beginning to bow his knee to this God who, in his grace and mercy has fulfilled his end of the deal with Jacob. He has protected Jacob. Laban Laban had every reason to harm him, every reason to kill him. Uh, He's provided for Jacob even more than Jacob's puny request. Jacob just asked God to to give him what he needed to live. He gives him so much more. I He makes him wealthy. And Jacob now knows this is all God's doing. So much so that it carries over into his family, his wives, who say in verse 16, at the beginning of the chapter, they were afraid, oh, how we we don't have anything. We're running away from my father, who is our provider, who has been giving us everything, and now we're running away from him. We have nothing. And by the end of verse 16, they both say, all the wealth God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. I love that. Whatever God has said to you, do. I know that if I'm wrestling with something, uh, being married, I have a wise wife. I know if she tells me um, that what you're, do, what you're thinking about and feeling like God's calling you to do isn't crazy, well, it might be crazy, but she gets on board with it. If she says it, I'm. we're going. We're doing it most of the time. And this is exactly what happens here. Whatever God has said to you, Jacob, do it. We're going with you. And with these words, this is when Jacob sets out. And where we see God acting for Jacob in our second point in verses 17 through 25. In these verses, uh, verses 17 through 24, uh, the flight from Laban is recounted. And again, we see God's Palpable presence in this as he acts on Jacob's behalf before Laban. You see, Laban is in hot pursuit of Jacob because Jacob has once again pulled one last trick on him. Look at verses 17 through 23 in chapter 31. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired at Padam Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had, and arose and crossed the Euphrates, and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead." When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramaean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So in this scene here, this is where God acts on Jacob's behalf very specifically. But ultimately, acting on behalf of the line of promise. Because if you remember, Leah has already given birth to Judah. Judah is the next in line to inherit the promises of God that, that came to Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. Judah is the one who will receive the blessing Yet even though Judah is alive and well, God remains faithful to Jacob because He always remains faithful to His chosen people as well as acting on their behalf. Do you understand that as a child of God, that He acts on your behalf? That the God who created everything, the God of the universe, acts on your behalf. And the way that he confirms this for us is obvious because he confirms it and proves this to us by sending his only son to die on your behalf. The ultimate acting on your behalf by taking on the punishment that your sin deserved. But then you also have this active work of the Trinity in our lives as well. If you, if you uh, read Romans chapter 8, Verse 34, Paul tells us this about Jesus. Who then is the one who condemns? No one, Paul says. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us before God. And then just before this, in Romans 8, uh, verses 26 through 27, Paul tells us about the Holy Spirit as well. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through, through wordless groans, and He who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So every person of the Godhead, every member of the Trinity... Is working on your behalf. You have God the Son Jesus, uh, God the Holy Spirit, interceding before the Father for you and for me every day. So, so this this is what this means. This means that that nothing that you bring to God will ever will will never not go before Him. Everything that you bring to God, because we have Jesus and the Spirit interceding on our behalf, no matter how messed up the prayer might be, will go before the Father. He will hear it. That's amazing. It, it, the things that you say to God will never not be heard. Everything. Because we have intercessors. Because we have two members of the Trinity going to God on our behalf. So this acting is is secured for you by by Christ's person and work, and, and He is the one who makes you, as the psalmist says, the apple of God's eye. He's the one who makes you like that. You don't have to make yourself like that. Jesus does that for you. And we see this sentiment in the way God acts for Jacob. Look at verse 24. So Laban's in hot pursuit. Laban Laban is going to war. You don't chase a man down for seven days just to go, hey man, you forgot to tell us goodbye. Laban is going to war. He's going to murder everybody. Verse 24. But God came to Laban the Aramaean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now that doesn't seem like much. It seems, it seems like weak sauce, honestly, from, from that perspective. It, it may not be what you expected God to say. I was thinking God would say something more of, Do not lay a finger on Jacob or I will smite you with the fire of heaven. But God says, don't say anything to him, good or bad. So to understand that and to kind of get some of the weight of that, you have to go back to something that Laban actually said long ago to Abraham's servant, if you remember, who at that time was uh, inquiring uh, to Laban and his family um, and his father about a wife for Jacob's father, Isaac. And this potential wife for Isaac was Rebekah, who is Laban's sister. And so after hearing all that God had accomplished through Abraham's servant, if you remember that, Abraham's servant was praising the Lord, that the God of my master has provided this woman for us. And just keeps going on and on about it to, to Laban and the rest of his family. And this is the answer that Laban and Bethuel respond with after they hear all about what God has done. The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Which meant, God had said it, and it was final. Nothing can be added to this situation. Nothing can be taken away from it. We can't make it better, and we can't make it worse. And this is what God says to Laban now in our text. You could reword it to say, don't harm my man Jacob. In fact, don't even say anything to him, good or bad, because this is my doing and it's final. There is nothing that you can do that will change my promises towards Jacob. So God twice prevents Laban from interfering with his plans with the same words. And by this prevention, we see how God acts on behalf of his people, and there is nothing anyone can add to it or take away from it. Laban even gets it when he finally overtakes Jacob. He says in verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm. I mean, it's true. It is in his power to do him harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, good or bad. God's actions towards His people, and if you are, if you are uh, found in Christ, you are one of His people, God's actions toward you cannot be thwarted, nor can they ever be credited to anyone else besides Him. And through God speaking and through God acting, we arrive at how God preserves his people in verses 25 through 55. And God shows his his preservation of Jacob in three ways in these verses. The first way that he shows them this is in verses 25 through 35, in that he protects Jacob. Let me just read those verses for us. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your fathers spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel's saddle and saddled them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. So in these verses, we witness... God not only protecting Jacob and his family, but he's also showing us God's superiority over other gods through this protection of the promised line. You may have thought it was a random piece of information when we hear in verse 19 that Rachel steals her father's household gods. It just They just kind of say it in passing. They're like, you can tell that there's a big rush to, to leave the land, and Rachel, as she's leaving, just sees the gods, scoops them up, puts them in her bag, and takes them with her. But now they show up again. Which is an incident that Moses, the author, uses to show the superiority of Jacob's God. So Moses, if you've caught this a a few times throughout the book of Genesis, Moses does sort of insert some things that he wants his readers to, to see specifically. And this is one of those things. He wants his readers to understand how, much, how, how superior God is over all the other gods. And so Laban's gods are incapable of helping him in, in the way God has helped Jacob. And this point is graphically made, as one commentator pointed out, as Rachel claims to be menstruating on these gods. Now I know that sounds terrible to say, but it's also something that, that, that uh, Moses puts in so that we know that these gods are nothing compared to the God of Jacob. When Rachel says, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. Moses is taking a shot at these false gods, these idols. They cannot help Laban in any way. So the second way we see his preservation is through affliction in verses 36 through 42. So in these verses, Moses tells us Jacob became angry at Laban. I mean, Laban is ripping through his camp. He is turning over tables. He is going through everything to find these gods, essentially blaming Jacob for something that Jacob uh, did not do, or at least was unaware that his wife had done. And this makes Jacob angry. And in his anger, he rehashes the past 20 years to his uncle. I mean, I'm sure some of you have done that with with somebody in your life that has hurt you tremendously. And then it just gets to the point where the straw breaks the camel's back and you're like, you just let them have it. And you just dress them down with everything that you can think of. This is what Jacob does. 20 years of pent-up frustration and anger comes out upon Laban. And in this angry rant, we hear God's overwhelming presence in Jacob's life. He affirms it in verse 42 when he says, if, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So through affliction, Jacob finally sees and finally understands that it's God who has kept him. That it's God who has seen him, even in his affliction. And that it's God who is moving him out of it. So the final way we see God has preserved Jacob is through reconciliation in verses 43 through 55. And specifically, God reconciling Laban to Jacob These men have been at each other for 20 years, back and forth, deceiving one another. You hear it, Laban has changed Jacob's uh, wages uh, 10 or more times. He's made him work for his, his wives, one of them he didn't even want. And Jacob's dressing down of Laban here leaves Laban speechless. I mean, big, dramatic pause. Awkwardness sets in. Laban knew he was beaten. Laban knew he was caught. All of his sons, all of his daughters, all of his grandchildren, all of his, his servants, everyone was present at this moment. So everything that Laban had done had been exposed. And so the only thing that he has left is to propose a covenant be cut between the two of them. This is the only way it can be solved. This covenant, because of verse 49, has been called, uh, the Mizpah blessing, uh, which is not, uh, actually, uh, a correct understanding of this moment. You've probably seen, uh, verse 42, um, upon plaques, like in a, we don't really have Christian bookstores anymore. Um, but you know plaques that you can get that are that are kind of cheesy that take Bible verses out of context because they just sound good, um, and this is one of those. The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. It sounds beautiful, and we should put that up on a bumper sticker or something. But that is not a blessing. It's actually a warning. Essentially, what this covenant says to Jacob. Uh, is that if either one of the parties crosses the boundary of the other, that God would judge the action of the one who broke the covenant. And this action would basically be death. Verse 53. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. Anytime you see that, that, that God's judgment is added to a covenant, that is, that is not something that is good. Because God is going, going to judge the wrongdoer. So this is a simple covenant with massive implications concerning the promise. God is protecting Jacob's family from, from, from one that could do harm if he wanted to. He could do harm now he could disobey what God says and just do harm, strike, strike Jacob down, or do harm later. I mean, he could be thinking, well, I could, I could, I could just wait a minute, and then I could come over and, and go to war with Jacob. But God preserves Jacob's life and brings a reconciliation where there once never was. And this is what God does. This is the pattern of God. And we'll see it happen a couple of more times for Jacob as he moves closer to home, but we can also see it in our own lives. God reconciling us to others, but most importantly, God reconciling us to himself. Because this is not something that we can do on our own. We can't reconcile ourselves before a holy God. It's it's impossible. It can only happen by a work of of divine intervention. That's the only way that's accomplished. And it's a work that is only accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the promised one. It only happens through the person and work of Jesus. Because it's in Christ that we, like Jacob, are safe, that we too can be confident of God's protection from all our enemies, which includes the enemy of our hearts. There's no way to get away from that. And we have learned from Jacob and Laban's 20 years together that we can't save ourselves. Jacob tried over and over again. And no other God or person can save you either. Your saving, your redemption, your reconciliation to God is only had in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are thankful that you are a God who still speaks through your word and through your people. You are a God who still acts on our behalf that you have confirmed for us in Christ. And you are a God who preserves us. You are a God who is is preserving us to the very end. And so, so we are so thankful that we have a God who cares this deeply for us even though we don't deserve it in and of ourselves. So thank you, thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you for the blood that he has shed upon the cross for us so that we might be reconciled to you through that blood. And so, God, I pray that you would make that a reality in us, uh, even if this is the, the, the 100th time we've heard this or the first time, that we would bow the knee to you again that we would give our hearts and our lives to this God who speaks to us, who acts on our behalf, and who preserves our life. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.